Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Our Strange Skies podcast. I am your host, Rob Christofferson, and I'm joined today by friend, fellow podcaster, Spencer Burt Davis. You're back, man. Uh, thanks for coming back on the pod. Of course. Thank you for having me. So I feel like this week, this would have been, this story in particular would have been, uh, what if podcast newsworthy oh, uh, in many ways? Excellent. Yeah. Uh, so on Tuesday, Vice Motherboard reported that uh, since the beginning uh, of the war in Ukraine, there has been heavy air traffic in the skies over Kiev, though not all of them appear to be Russian planes. Oh, I mean, you, Ukraine has planes, too, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, they do have planes. They've been supplied planes, but it's not just Russian and Ukrainian planes. We got uh, a study planes. released on August 23rd uh, by Kiev's main astronomical observatory in coordination with the country's National Academy of Science describes a specific type of UFO that is appearing over their skies. They dub them phantoms okay. which uh according to them is uh quote an object that is completely black body and does not emit and absorbs all radiation falling on it end quote whoa what yeah yeah it's huh <laughs> radiation meaning yeah. like light or what do we what are we talking about when we say absorbs all radiation what does that mean so uh, what they're saying is like uh, in areas where, you know, the fighting is going on, warheads are being thrown. This thing, these things are absorbing this radiation that that's coming from all this stuff. Apparently that's that it, it was worded okay. weirdly, but and, and we know um, that how uh, because there were there were uh, we'll, we'll get into that. The how, but there's okay. a, a, a strompers like they had a difficult time trying to take photos of these objects because these objects just kept appearing in the sky over um, these war zones. And mm -hmm. um, the researchers noted, this is a direct quote, uh, the eye does not fix phenomenon lasting less than one tenth of a second. It takes four tenths of a second to recognize an event. Ordinary photo and mm -hmm. video recordings will also not capture the phenomenon. To detect UAP, you need to fine-tune the equipment, shutter speed, frame rate, and dynamic range. Um, so researchers then used meteorological obs uh, observation stations in Kiev and in another location to document all the stuff, to get kind of a visual on it. Uh, quote, we have developed a special observation technique, taking into account the high speeds of the observed objects. The exposure time was chosen so that the image of the object did not shift significantly during exposure. The frame rate was chosen to take into account the speed of the object and the field of view of the camera. 
in practice, the exposure time was less than one millisecond and the frame rate was no less than 50 Hertz end quote. Um, so basically there are, f there are fast moving objects in the sky over Kiev and other areas. Yeah. So why That's, was this a, why are astronomers the ones looking into this though? Is there like some Im implication that it's some sort of astronomical event or it seems like that's it's likely some sort of man-made something right that's you know the the belief is that maybe this is advanced technology of some kind it, yeah. you know in terms of you know maybe it's uh you know russian chinese uh could be from any countries uh specifically but like um it doesn't speculate necessarily on what the objects are but you can kind of you know go there like the, the the papers is fascinating um uh just in like some of the observations that they've made um flights of single group and squadrons of the ships were detected moving at speeds from 3 to 15 degrees per second phantoms are observed in the troposphere at distances of up to 10 to 12 kilometers or about uh, 6.2 to 7.4 miles. We estimate their size from 3 to 12 meters or about 10 to 40 feet. So, you know, uh, it's a range of, of sizes here. Like, uh, you know, something that's 10 feet and something that's 40 feet is, um, you know, it's a 400% difference. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, like, if I recall the Tic Tacs were about 40 some odd feet long. So, uh, you know, it's, it's in Tic Tac range here. Um, so these objects could move at speeds up to 50 kilometers per second or about nine miles per second. What the fuck? Yeah. And, and they're, they're flying at, you said five to six miles. So like 30 to 35,000 feet. Yeah. They are they are booking it like, damn, that would be really hard to capture any sort of data from something yes, as small exactly. as 10 feet across moving nine. You said nine miles per second. Yes, that is unfathomable, unfathomably fast at 30 plus thousand feet. Yeah. Damn. And okay. like to and, and like that's kind of genius. You, you got two groups coordinating using their like, like meteorological uh, observation stations like like it's it's a fascinating story depending on you know like they don't they don't necessarily come to any conclusions other than hey there are these fast moving things in the sky we don't know what they are but again it's not a scientist's job to really speculate on something like that but uh, given this story that came out, um, it felt pertinent to talk about UFOs over war zones, because uh, aside from like the Foo Fighters, which are probably what most people think of as, uh, you know, UFOs during wartime, there have been reports from the Korean War, from 
Vietnam, uh, from the Algerian War, when Algeria was fighting for its independence from France, and uh, like a, a few other, you know, kind of notable wars, even um, Desert Storm, there was a UFO sighting. But uh, um, the term Foo Fighters, it dates to uh, an article in the December 1945 issue of American Legion magazine entitled The Foo Fighter Mystery. And the author was a guy named Joe Chamberlain. And and Chamberlain had gone and collected firsthand accounts uh, while visiting the 415th Night Fighter Squadron base in France. And he kind of at first traced their origins back to about 1944. Um, most of the, uh, you know, guys that he talked to were U S soldiers, but, uh, according to earlier reports, uh, by the, uh, Royal air force sightings dated back to about 1940. So, so this is all like world war two era. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the war front in world war two was vastly different, than it was in World War One, you know, like World War One, we all have that image of you know trench warfare, people just like hold up, uh, you know, returning fire every now and then, um, and it was kind of like the advent of the tank that kind of helped um, America and and the British and and such to to win that war. So World War Two, we have more advanced uh, tanks. We have airplanes that are uh, significantly used, um, and it. I have googled yeah. so many stupid things already while you've been talking, such as yeah. when were tanks invented? How fast do airplanes go? <laughs> 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 just, just to back up, when you said not to the to the Ukrainian UFO thing, you said nine miles per second. Yeah. So if I'm doing that math correctly. So nine miles per second times 60 is 540 miles per minute times 60 again is 32,400 miles per hour. Yeah. That's like many, many times faster than the fastest known aircraft, right? Yeah. Okay, cool, cool, cool. So that's not an airplane. Got it. No, does <laughs> okay. not does not qualify for for airplane status, uh, as far as I can tell. Unless we learn how to make them like fifteen times faster, real quick. <laughs> yeah, okay, got it. Exactly. Sorry. Exactly. Carry on, Foo Fighters. But, but yeah, like uh, the the Warfront is vastly different in World War Two than it is World War One. This is really the first time that you're fully in a in a war that is of land sea and air basically so uh you know allied aircraft were exceptionally big their bombers were huge they required about eight men to pilot and uh prior to the advent of radar uh which was coming into its infancy uh throughout the war um navigation amounted to nothing more than compasses and sextants so they were basically navigating using uh what they called star shots um kind of doing it the way that you know old sea captains kind of do but just in the air you know it's um it's wild how like that was 
roughly a hundred years ago. Mm-hmm. And we're basically, we're using maritime navigational systems. And now a yeah. hundred years later, we've got shit flying through the skies at 30,000 miles an hour. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Absorbing radiation. Yes. Absorbing radiation from all of your ammunition. Like, um, that's like one long lifetime later. It that, is. That's wild. It it truly is. Like, uh, there is nothing that can survive in an object like that moving at 33 miles an hour unless, like, it's amorphous as hell, I would assume. Like, I have, like, I, yeah, cartoon I images. Not, I would assume there's not yeah. a human inside of that thing. No, I like there's no way that anything with bones is surviving uh, anything in that. <laughs> They're piloted by jellyfish. Yep. Uh, completely gelatinous uh, occupants on board. Um, so, Sentient jello like, is flying around the world. <laughs> yep. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so basically, you know, night after night during the war, planes cross the English Channel and, you know, the British would go into Germany, bomb, you know, many of their territories. The Luftwaffe would, you know, they had, they would come and and, and answer with their own. Uh, the Germans did have a lot of, like, advanced technology, but, like, very infant in its advanced, you know, advancements. Like, um, they had kind of um they had the beginnings of like heat seeking rockets but the the way that you would um launch them you had to launch them from a plane in the air and they didn't work very well because again radar uh and radio kind of um radio controlled objects are very much in their infancy around this time um so um it's an interesting time uh, for both sides because uh, you know the British and and the Germans they would kind of like go back and forth with advancements in the radar technology which was handy in um, detecting planes that are going on bombing runs and, and such and uh, you know developing radar jamming technology and such but uh, according to Graham Rendell's uh, book, uh, UFOs Before Roswell, European Foo Fighters, 1940 to 1945, the first reported encounter with a Foo Fighter is dated to August 11th, 1940, in an RAF uh, intelligence report entitled Phenomenon Connected to Enemy Night Tactics. So nearly 100 reports had been collected, but... Every every time the, these objects didn't seem to pose a threat of any kind, they would often be seen tailing planes, pulling up beside them and such, but like never seen being hostile really in, in any way. So the folks that generated this report, they chalked it up to a couple of factors, uh, including the strain of the job, because, you know, when you're in the air and you're going on a bombing run and you've got anti-aircraft fire, you know, coming at you and you've basically are, are trying to maneuver yourself using the most antiquated technology to do so into the right spot and all this. Like, yeah, I could understand how under the strain it would yeah, get seem, to you. A seems little bit. plenty stressful. Sure, sure. Mm-hmm. A little, a little yeah. life or death action. Yep. Uh, and and the other thing that they largely blamed it on is 
uh, you know, advanced experimental technology that the German army was using, which, um, you know, they did uh, bust out things on the um, on the war front and such. But um, uh, the report states, quote, it is difficult to assess the accuracy of some of the reports where enemy aircraft have not attacked or have not approached uh, close enough to be identified with certainty. And where the reports have not been substantiated by more than one of the crew. So often a lot of these reports of Foo Fighters would just be from one crew member on board uh, a plane at a time. But um, despite that fact, you know, the, def the phenomenon that's dismissed by the RAF sightings of these objects just kept happening, though. Um, in March... 1942 a report from sergeant robin sabinski uh it, it, this one sticks out a little bit uh you know he's part of the 301st squadron which is a polish division of the royal air force and and sabinski and crew were off the coast of holland at the time and they were returning from a bombing raid on essen uh germany uh his rear gunner called out to him over the plane's phone and uh there was a disc shaped luminous object quote about the size of the moon which was also visible at the same time maybe a lot bigger wait wait wait, wait 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 this yeah. thing was as big or bigger than the moon i'm assuming they mean like in terms of how large it appeared in the sky correct yeah okay yeah okay. exactly <laughs> so you got the moon you got this other thing that's as Big as the moon in the sky. Yeah. And sure, sure. Uh, it's uh, it's tailing their plane and it's approaching pretty fast. So uh, according to an article in the March, April 1962 issue of Flying Saucer Review, quote, the object was of a glowing orange color. It appeared at 15,000 feet, about 100 or 200 yards away. Its speed was estimated at 180 miles per hour, but disappeared at an estimated speed of 1,000 miles per hour. Um, and according to a MUFON report, uh, because uh, he was, uh, Sabinsky was interviewed years later, uh, quote, I told him if this object comes too close, then we will have to open fire on him. My idea was that it was perhaps a German fighter equipped with a searchlight in the nose. So when this thing came close, I wouldn't take any chances on it. And I told my rear gunner to uh, to give him a blast, end quote. Get him. So it, as you can imagine, this object gets approaches to about 200 yards away. Opens fire. Okay. Oh, yeah. And then Qu what? Yeah. Uh, quote, now the <laughs> peculiar thing about it was that they were just going in and that was the end of it. They wouldn't fall away. Those tracers would just enter and that was it. They, that lasted for maybe two minutes. And after that time, the shiny object changed, posi changed position and at a terrific speed moved over our port side almost at the same distance, about 200 yards from the wing. And then it stayed there. So it basically absorbed these bullets. Yeah, it just, just said, fuck it, I'll eat them. Yep. Eat them all up. <laughs> That's and, pretty cool. Yeah. So the object... So you yeah. said this is, uh, what year, 42? 42, yep. So this is pre-everything, right? Like, 
Roswell was 47, 49? 47, yeah. And the Ghost Rocket stuff, that was like 45, 46? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so this is completely new at the time. Yeah, yeah, which I can understand why they would be saying, oh, this has to be like, you know, advanced German technology. Yeah, and that's a it, reasonable... It has to be. A reasonable yeah. hypothesis. Yeah. More reasonable than aliens are here and <laughs> following us around the skies for no reason. Yep. So, you know, this object, it shoots up, it takes a position off the port wing, and the rear and front gunner both come together and they start shooting at this object again, and still it just kind of keeps absorbing all these shots and Sabinsky then tried these evasive maneuvers to get away from it but the object just kind of kept in the same position off to its wingtip so they just keep trying to shoot this thing but uh it fails every time until it finally moves to the front of the plane where it remained for a few minutes before speeding away uh, quote at a 45 degree angle and just disappeared into the stars end quote that's wild to have so like a, a sighting very close range clearly a physical object not reacting the way any physical object should react to being shot I, I mean dozens hundreds of times whatever and then disappears like that's not a things don't do that <laughs> <laughs> that's not, not how, in, that's not, not how in 1942 work. well i mean not now either like that's just not how no. physical objects work no uh you know they they don't bank upwards like that they don't they don't they, they don't move get at speeds like that. shot hundreds of times with no effect <laughs> like that's that's not that's not real yeah except no, apparently it, it is, is. Uh, you know, apparently it was at, at this point, uh, but Sabinsky's story was corroborated by a second pilot who had been at a flying at a distance behind the plane. And um, this pilot's never named, but uh, it's included in like every single report. But like more than one person on this plane observed this thing. This is like, you know, I think damn near every member of that crew plus this, you know, plane behind it. Uh, see this the very strange object but um, reports from British bombing groups would come in through August and December of 1942 as well uh, there was some uh, they, they come to believe that it's like guided missile technology in its infancy and again like it doesn't seem to be the case because of um, just how far along Germany was with their guided missiles at the time. They, again, they didn't work very well. So uh, it's kind of unclear exactly what these things are. And like, they're not just seeing like saucers, like in Sabinsky's report, they are seeing like long cylindrical objects. Some of them appear to have portholes and, and such on them, which is, you know, interesting because, Hey, guess what? Your, your long range missiles like that, they don't have portholes on them. Yeah. For, <laughs> for what? Right. Well, and, they, and even if it were a guided missile, if you shoot it a bunch of times, mm -hmm. it's, it's going to react. It's not just going to, yes. 
keep functioning the same way as it was before. And also, I mean, I guess maybe a, a missile could eventually like veer off course or something, but following a plane for that long and then banking and disappearing, like mm-hmm. two thirds of those, of those characteristics don't add up with a guided missile. Right. Exactly. Um, so January of 1943 is when American bomber crews start reporting these uh, strange objects in the sky, too. On January 11th, a B-17 crew saw something that was described as a quote-unquote smoke ball. And uh, <laughs> another on that same day that was described as a swarm of bees. I don't know why, but whatever UFOs are described as either sounding like or looking like bees. Mm-hmm. I just hate it. It yeah. just freaks me right out. Yeah. Um, like what if a swarm of bees could move hundreds of miles per hour? <laughs> there was what the heck, what the heck episode was it? I don't know if I, I, wow, I'm so far in the weeds, but um, <laughs> there is a, a story that I read in which, this person saw a humanoid that lifted in the air. And when it did, it sounded like a swarm of bees. And yeah, uh, that's no fucking way, dude. I don't want to be anywhere near that. No, no. Like, you know, there is nothing good that comes from a swarm of bees other than honey. And even, even then, like I'm not getting it, especially not if it can move at hundreds of miles per hour and, or turn it, turn into a person at some point. Exactly. Absolutely like, not. It, it, it's uh, <laughs> it's doing too many things, and I don't like that. No, at all. Not one bit. Uh, so four days later, on uh, January the fifteenth, one crew, while on a raid over Cherbourg, France, saw a large number of projectiles resembling flying fish. So, like, these objects are strange. They're they're not they're not even conventional by UFO like terms in in many ways. So you know, you tend to wonder is there like a a trend of you know, from the beginning of UFOs in the 40s till now just in a very general sense, does it get like do we see a narrower band of or like a narrower range in terms of types of UFOs over time? I feel like you don't hear about balls of smoke and swarms of bees and flying fish anymore. You you hear like saucers, maybe like a cigar shaped thing. Yeah. And that's about it. I think when Kenneth Arnold described seeing them the way that they were and like Kenneth Arnold's um, descriptions of what he saw aren't really conventional by most you you know you by the UFO kind of standards of, of the day like sure they were most of them were like disc shaped but they had this like protrusion on the back which was weird um, okay. and I always was, thought they were like sort of I guess quote unquote traditional saucer shaped they they are and yet like that bump on the back kind of just like it, they stand out for that reason okay and like 
uh, you know, like it, it might not be a, you know, a major thing to most people. And like, of course, that lead object kind of looked like a boomerang. But um, I think Kenneth, like Kenneth Arnold and a lot of those early sightings kind of established the language that would go forth and, and used uh, when it comes to descriptions, because uh, I mean, in some of these cases, in some of these Foo Fighter accounts, they are more typical of, um, you know, like something that's saucer shaped or something that is like cigar shaped or cylindrical or something like that. But yeah. uh, that language definitely started to come early. Uh, as And like, you know, this definitely because I'm trying to picture like a swarm of bees in my head, like. Are they small? How many of them are there? Like, right? Can also, you see individual points in this thing? Yeah. Is it like a cloud that's sort of right? Has some sort of oh, like translucence or right. something to it? Like, it's it's it can't be like is it, it, are they saying it's not one hundred percent physical? Uh, is it like right, uh, or is it like you know somewhat transparent what what exactly is that because I don't understand like how an object looks like a smoke ball like it's weird, yeah, I'm imagining for the swarm of bees, I'm imagining it's somewhat amorphous or like when mm -hmm. you see a um like a school of fish, yeah. or what are the birds that sort of all move uh in oh yeah. yeah in a big swarm there's a word for it that i can't think of the bird that i can't think of the name of moves in the way of the thing that i can't think of but i think you they know what I'm saying. In, yeah they move in flocks you know um yeah, yeah. but it's like a it's like a starling or something where there'll be hundreds of them that all mm -hmm. move together but yeah in sort of yeah this they move up and down together unpredictable like, way yeah 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 exactly but um, then uh, i can't quite get my head around how that would then also be like a craft yeah that's the thing is like it, it it feels like an object in an in-between place like yeah it, it yeah which like, is maybe why i hate it yeah <laughs> it, it <laughs> it's, seems it's sort been... of surreal or like liminal or something yeah exactly like why don't you try on this new existential crisis here yeah, with exactly. this madness? Like this thing's scary enough. Now I'm just like, now I have an existential, like fundamental questioning of reality problem on my hands as well. <laughs> right. And like that kind of gets to the idea that um, even back then, these objects are not you know maybe 100% physical so uh, yeah. yeah it's just like if you but got reports of it back then ee. that's what's interesting to me is i think i've always thought of it as either it is a physical thing or it is not right and that there maybe could be this in between i think is mm -hmm. what's throwing me off of like a semi physical object or a an object that can move in and out of a physical plane or realm or whatever. Yeah. That seems worse to me. <laughs> it, it it seems so much worse. The ball um, of smoke. I'm just imagining the, the monster from lost. That's, that's oh, whatever. Yeah. yeah. That's totally fair. That, that is scary. totally fair. Just get a big um, fan. You'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> 
So on May 27th, 1943, a Canadian bomber was involved in a bombing run over Essen. And Essen is like, a, it's an industrialized German city. Uh, it, it's bombed repeatedly over the course of the war. Um, uh, and uh, at this time, uh, a guy named Ray Smith is in a plane flying over at about 19,000 feet. Um, this uh, They're flying in what are known as RAF Halifax bombers. And so they arrive at the, their target. There's heavy anti-aircraft fire. While preparing for the run, with all of these shells bursting around them, Smith spotted a strange, you know, object on his left. It was long and cylindrically shaped, uh, bigger than the bomber he was in. It was just ginormous. Um, it was silver and gold ringed with portholes and, and rounded apertures spaced along its length. And the crew watched the cylinder for about a minute until it sped away upward at speeds of estimated estimated to be about 4,000 miles per hour. So it's Damn. booking it. That is also like, I think faster than airplanes currently can go. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's pretty fast. It's too fast. It's, it's pretty, it's too, pretty, pretty, I would pretty say too fast. fast you know? <laughs> so September 6th, over 350 USB-17s set out on a bombing raid over Stuttgart, uh, which was an important hub for German uh, for Germany because of its uh, railway system. The city was bombed at least fifty times during the war, uh, and I, and I think like the book said that it was like over eight hundred and fifty planes that were involved in bombing the city during World War Two. Why? Uh, because it's because like they targeted a lot of like. Uh, for their railway system, that's how they, you know, kind of got their um, some of their weapons oh. out um, through, sure, through sure, railways sure. and such. Um, but uh, during this particular run, uh, the B-17s, you know, engulfed in this anti-aircraft fire. But within it all, two separate crews on two different uh, bombers reported seeing silver discs in the air, hundreds of them, the size of half dollars just floating down from above. The, um, the cluster uh, was stated to be at least 75 feet long and 20 feet wide. So this is like, again, like, it's interesting to think of them as maybe like, you know, in, in the terms of like a swarm of silver discs, small silver discs. Yeah. This era is so much more fun, man. Flying mm -hmm. fish and swarms of silver dollars. <laughs> but right. the giant bees. Uh, <laughs> and and like uh you know there were there were some that claimed that um when these discs like fell down onto the planes they would catch fire. But um there's really not a lot of verification on that specific aspect, but but again, like I just don't think that a lot of these guys are making this stuff up, especially when you're like Why would you? talking about like a bunch of silver again, like if you're going to make something up or if you're hallucinating something, 
you know, I, I feel like it would be more in the realms of something more conventional than this. So, and I mean, I could be wrong, but uh, you'd want something that might be believed. I would think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. It's, It's just so, so weird. And the, the entire time the military is downplaying it, you know, saying it's hallucinations from high stress pilots, you know, they've got them on uh, uh, Benzedrine. So, you know, they're drugged up on these what is, on these what is that? bombing runs so so that, you know, they can stay awake and, and, and stuff. But like I, I can only imagine the stress of a situation like that being in a huge chunk of metal flying at night with no lights, uh, trying to find your targets. And, and I can understand how stressful that would be. But it's just it's it's weird. Well, but, um, I can understand too the military not wanting to just come out and say like, "Yeah, we don't know what's going on out there," mm-hmm. <laughs> and that you want to obviously present that you're in control and have good intelligence and everything. Yeah, but also, I got to imagine it was a lot harder to have good intelligence about foreign nations at that time. Yeah, I I would agree with you on that. Like, like the technology itself is so much newer, but also like you would have had to have physical spies on the ground to be gaining intelligence probably about what other countries had access to or what they were developing, right? Like Yeah. You're not yeah. getting satellite images or anything like that. Yeah. Um I I agree, and uh, according to to Frank Edwards uh, in his book Flying Saucers Here and Now, which was published posthumously in 1967, I believe, um, there was an investigative group that looked into these reports. Uh, quote: As early as 1943, the English had set up a small organization to gather information on these objects. It was under the direction of Lieutenant General Massey and it had been inspired to some extent by the reports of a spy who was in reality a double agent working under the direction of the mayor of Cologne. He had confirmed that the Foo Fighters were not German devices, but that the Germans thought they were allied uh, ranging instruments, which, of course, the British knew they were not, end quote. So, you know, getting at the idea that both sides are kind of just like pointing the figure and you know at, yeah. at each other but like um you know to date the existence of uh lieutenant general massey has not been proven and you know just given that it's frank edwards you know i wouldn't be surprised if he was lying through his teeth but uh <laughs> john keel like it's, it's just it's the way frank edwards was you know is it normal for a mayor to have spies? <laughs> I thought that was more of like a, a national thing, not so much a like a municipal <laughs> thing. Yeah. I mean, that's fair. That's a, that's a fair question. Uh, you know, I, mean, I'm, I could be mistaken, but like I didn't I didn't know cities had their own like intelligence forces. Maybe right. during a world war, you do. Maybe. You know, maybe for, you know, resistances and, and stuff in, in cities. Yeah. It, you know, very well could be. Um, 
But John Keel noted in, in Operation Trojan Horse, quote, that this implies treasury sanction. It suggests that in the middle of the war against Germany, when we had our hands full and it was far from certain we could survive, the air ministry was concerned with a UFO menace uh, existed. It most certainly was not. The letter names a general who is not listed in my earliest who's who of 1955. So unless he died, meanwhile, he di- he did not exist in the British Army, end quote. So, well, there's one explanation. Know, <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, Keel just like, you know, laying it down. So, you know, it, it wasn't just discs that were encountered but rockets as well and on the night of january 2nd 1944 an raf mosquito flying over the town of uh, halberstadt noted a quote rocket following his plane and it overtook his plane performing this 90 degree turn in the process to fly parallel with him for about a minute before it proceeded uh, ahead of him and disappeared uh this sighting occurred, you know, about uh, a few months before German V1 and V2 rockets would appear on the warfront. And even then, they didn't follow planes. They just went upward and, you know, right. like they didn't make 90 degree turns. You mean? <laughs> no, no, they didn't do that. Didn't do that. So, like, uh, you know, the Nazis, they were working on. You know, they're they're heat they're seeking rockets, uh, which were called HS two ninety threes, and uh, the way that they described it was like an unmanned airplane, in a sense, powered by a liquid fuel motor with a warhead in its nose and early radio guidance technology, and you know, again, it had to be dropped from a plane from up above, so not exactly the most effective type of stuff, but. Um, there were similar incidents, though, uh, in the United States in 1943. A uh, military training plane out of Long Beach, California, took off uh, achieving an altitude of about 5,000 feet when an unidentified aerial object just made its presence known, shaped like the fuselage of an aircraft, but with no wings or propellers on it. So that's weird. Yeah. Yeah, that's not ideal. You know, no. Uh, you know, this object, it kind of just closes the gap between them very quickly, making uh, I wrote down a shark turn and I'm going to start calling it a shark turn from now on. Uh, <laughs> we're making shark turns out here. It's sharp. You get you get bit. So wait, did you did you just mean sharp or? Yeah. Exactly. Oh, okay. Yeah. I thought you meant maybe like <laughs> sort of yeah, like right? swimming motion. <laughs> So, you know, making shark turns and, you know, pulling alongside the plane for about a minute before, you know, speeding off at about 5,000 miles an hour. No biggie, you know, just. Um, but like uh, these um, kind of the, like the idea that, hey, this is kind of just like an airplane without like the stuff that makes it fly uh, is it, interesting because uh there is one uh, particular object that uh, kind of resembles these objects, and it was seen in Oklahoma in 1966. So, you know, it's um, during the, the time of Project Blue Book, it's believed that uh, there's only one close encounter of the third kind case that is unknown. But there's actually two. 
And the second involves a man named William Eddie Laxon. On Wednesday, March 23rd, 1966, he was driving to work. Uh, Laxon was employed as an electrical engineer and instructor at Shepard Air Force Base. So he lived about 42 miles away in Temple, Oklahoma. So he, he made the drive every day. And uh, he had just turned onto U.S. Highway 70 um, towards Randlett. And after passing a small farmhouse on his left, he was forced to stop his car. Because there in the middle of the road was a strange looking object parked in the middle of the road. And it, you know, having worked on the base, Laxon said uh, the craft looked like a conventional C-124 aircraft without wings or motor motors. Uh, it had no wings, propellers, no visible external engines, etc. It, it's just kind of in many ways, they, they did describe it as kind of like a fish. Um, like a, a mechanical fish. Wouldn't that so, be roughly the the description of a rocket, though? Yeah, in a way, yeah. Um, I guess they still have yeah. fins of some kind, usually. But right, but um, yeah, it's just kind of like a a decently sized fuselage. So you know. Laxon was very familiar with all sorts of aircraft because uh, he'd clocked over 8,000 hours of flight time during his uh, lifetime. Um, and uh, not only that, he he taught courses on how to identify aircraft during World War II. <laughs> so, oh, so he knows what he's talking about. Yeah. Kind yeah. of a perfect witness to see something like that. To um, try and identify an aircraft. Yeah. 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 That's, so that's the after, guy you'd want. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, after, you know, Laxon stops his vehicle uh, approximately, he's about 50 yards away. So, you know, he's half a football field if we're uh, talking about Ryan Copperwood uh, measurements here. <laughs> if we're using um, the American but, system. Yeah, the American system. So he jumps out and he begins running towards this object. And standing next to it is a man. He was wearing a green Air Force fatigue type uniform and a tan hat. And Laxon could see chevrons on his sleeves. And he okay. described them as about five foot, nine inches tall, weighing 180 pounds. Everything about this man screamed Air Force to him. The craft also had an insignia on the side that read either TL-4138 or TL-4738. Okay. Is that so it's got identifying meaningful? Marks in some okay, kind. just, yeah, all right. Yeah. So upon seeing Laxon, the man just sprints right. He, he makes a beeline right into the craft, and it immediately starts to lift up uh, about 50 feet in the air, and, you know, without turning or banking, it accelerates to approximately 720 miles per hour heading towards red river and the craft made kind of a high-pitched electrical drill uh type sound when it when it departed and huh. yeah it's you know that american technology <laughs> i mean maybe though right like mm -hmm. I don't know what it would have been doing there, but if it's piloted by a human and it's got identifiers on it and this guy seems to be in the Air Force, like. Right. Seems exactly like a reasonable explanation. 
it's literally the the right place right time for any one witness to witness anything odd at any point yeah ever like even more so than like Lonnie Zamora um who you know he he didn't know how to identify aircraft but he was still a good observer but yeah this um it's it's an it's an interesting case and um laxon said that he could kind of feel his hair standing up on end as it lifted off and even more compelling a man by the name of cw anderson who lived in snyder claimed that the craft had been following his truck for several miles uh he was employed by the magnum oil and gas company at the time and according to project blue book Quote, various organizations were contacted around the Temple, Oklahoma area for a possible experimental or conventional aircraft. The observer stated that he thought the object was some type of Army or Air Force research aircraft. All attempts at such an explanation proved fruitless since there was no aircraft in the area at the time of the sighting. Although... There were numerous uh, kind of helicopters and other experimental aircraft uh, at bases kind of around Temple, but uh, none could be put uh, in the area at uh, the time of Laxon sighting. So, yeah, it's 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 a weird one. It's a very weird one. Maybe he just got lost. <laughs> Maybe yeah. he stole an airplane. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe yeah. he stole an airplane and then got lost. Right. Yeah, you know, just uh, it kind of rings of um, uh, the uh, mystery airships in a way, just like dude touching down. Like if they had talked, it would have been amazing. But uh, just, yeah. uh, you know, out with my experimental aircraft, kind of like, you you know, you're walking a dog or something. But um, <laughs> got to take know. it out for a spin at least once a day you know, or else it yep. gets, gets bored. It does. And we don't want our <laughs> aircraft bored. Yeah. Uh, um, there were a couple of instances where objects were seen from the ground uh, because, you know, most of the time it was um, flight crews seeing uh, these objects. But uh, during the Normandy invasion of 44, one Allied ship, the SS uh, George E. Badger, which was a cargo ship, uh, it was sitting off the, the beaches waiting for Allied forces to establish their beachhead. Uh, and specifically, I think it was uh, uh, might have been off of Omaha Beach. Uh, on that boat was a crewman named Eddie Breckel, and he was a gunner. And during the, the battle, Breckel, Breckel saw a long, dark, tubular object flying just about 15 feet above the water, traveling in this kind of circular path. It sounds very Tic Tac-ish in, in a way, just like hanging out above the water. Um, he saw it for about three minutes before it just kind of um, disappeared. And another guy, um, a columnist, George uh, Tott, he was a columnist for the Los Angeles Herald Examiner. Kind of in, like, I don't know what the provenance of a paper like this is back in the day. It's not like we talk about the Los Angeles Herald Examiner much, but like apparently they were sending guys to the war front to cover it. Okay. So well, they're pretty serious. Yeah. He was attached to, to an, uh, a U.S. Army unit 
And during his time there, he observed a strange red fireball that seemed to pulsate flying over Omaha Beach. It was silent, uh, and the young reporter assumed that it must have been a V-1 rocket. But, uh, yeah, like, just uh, that's like a slice of kind of the stuff that, you know, is, is associated with the, the Foo Fighter accounts and stuff. Because I think the popular... Uh, conception is is that they you know a bunch of people saw you know lights in the sky and stuff like that when you know uh we got smoke balls people we got yeah, smoke a, balls a little more involved than that it turns out yeah <laughs> just a bit smoke balls just and a bit bee swarms and flying fish yeah just it, like it feels very fortean in a way uh you know yeah. as uh uh you know the the accounts that you know he would print of flying fish accounts but fish falling from the sky weird stuff like that right. it fits into a lot of uh his um kind of style but uh we're going to move on to the Korean war now and early on during the war the 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 saucers made their appearance uh too much two months into the conflict in September of 1950 after nearly being pushed off the peninsula entirely by the North Koreans, a trio of Navy fighters lifted off from an aircraft carrier en route to a location 100 miles south of the Chinese border where there was a North Korean truck convoy um, and it was on the move. And while making preparations for their bombing run, the pilots of these bombers saw a pair of strange shadows like crossing over this valley below. Two saucer-shaped objects traveling 1,200 miles per hour were casting their large shadows below them. They estimated its size to be about 700 feet in diameter. So we Damn. got a big boy here. That boy is big. Yeah. Uh one of the radar operators went to arm the guns on his plane just kind of on instinct. And he found that when he did his radar jammed and his radio was malfunctioning and it just kind of kept emitting this strange buzzing sound. So it's creepy to me in these accounts when pilots are like, I'm going to go arm my radar. And like right before they do it, this stuff happens. And it's like, mm -hmm. Oh no, it can, it can read minds. It knows. This is not good. Yeah. <laughs> Which, like, it's always so hard to separate that from coincidence because we want to make connections between things, even if there yeah. isn't one. But it is it is definitely spooky. It's it's uh, it's a little spooky, little uh, little frightening. So these two saucers uh, that were kind of moving away from them at the time, they stopped did an about face and just kind of flew towards these planes and oh, no. the objects circled around them for a, a brief period of time, almost kind of like an animal, just trying to size up what's in the air with it. And sure. um, they spun around again and just kind of flew off to the Northwest. So yeah, it's um, it seems like during wartime, like the the way that these sightings are described because a lot of them fit into this kind of pattern is like it very much feels like an animal is just kind of uh in its territory like trying to figure out what's uh in its territory and you know sizing it up a little bit um 
Have you seen Nope yet? I have. I yeah. have, and I loved it. We need to have a, a conversation about that at another time. But Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so, uh, you know, much like World War II, military was quick to dismiss these reports as, you know, secret weapons tests and the like. Uh, on January 29th, 1952, two B-29 bombers were flying over Wonsan, North Korea, and they were approached by an orange saucer-shaped object that flew parallel to them. And the Air Force called it a uh, quote-unquote secret flare weapon, but the pilots who were actually World War II veterans said it didn't resemble anything they'd ever encountered before. So uh, suck well, it, well, it's know, Air Force. They hadn't <laughs> encountered it because it's super secret, obviously. Yeah. Oh, clearly. Clearly. It's a, you know, um, I, I don't even know what a secret flare weapon is, but, you know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> because it's so <laughs> secret. <laughs> Maybe secret flare weapons is uh, what people saw, uh, what the Phoenix lights are. I don't know. We'll never know. It's too no, secretive. We'll never know. It's, uh, you know, that's uh, need to know information. And I'm not on that need to know list, which is fine. It's fine. Not all of us can be Tom DeLong. But, uh, <laughs> that fucking guy. <laughs> <laughs> fucking guy. Uh, August of 1942. Another B-29 bomber crew. Saw an orange-shaped cigar this time streaking past them. This, the Air Force said, was a surface-to-air missile. Granted, it wasn't until two years later that SAMs were used in Korea. Okay. Yeah. At least that one, like, I could see a prototype or, like, something being used before it was formally documented or, you know. Yeah. Two years isn't that long. Right. Still weird, but at least like within the realm of possibility. It's no smoke monster, I guess is what I'm saying. It's no, it's no lost smoke monster, but (laughs) you know, it's still, it's still pretty cool. But, uh, uh, one of the most fascinating accounts from the Korean war is from a private first class named Francis P. Wall. Uh, in 1987, he confided to John P. Timmerman of the Center for UFO Studies that in May of 1951, while stationed in Chorwon, his regiment was attacked by a UFO. The soldiers were in a bunker on the outskirts of town, prepared to go in and uh, you know take a, uh, take the village after the bombing run was complete. Um, quote. We suddenly noticed on our right hand side what appeared to be a jack o' lantern come wafting across the mountain. <laughs> wafting. Wafting. Uh, I didn't know which part of that to react to. I was like, a pumpkin, a flying pumpkin. Pretty fucking like, weird. But wafting? What is that? What a what a cool description of, of a flying pumpkin's motion. Yeah, like Google Docs doesn't know what to make of it right now. It's just got a blue line under it. And I'm like, I totally understand. <laughs> right I there get with it. you, bud. <laughs> I don't know either, dude. <laughs> uh, this thing continued on down to the village where our artillery bursts were exploding. It had an orange glow in the beginning. We further noticed it could get uh, into the center of an airburst of artillery and yet remain unharmed. Hmm. That's pretty weird. 
yeah, that's that's again, it's kind of like that, you know, one UFO that uh, was just absorbing it. It's it's the same kind of situation here. So well, and and pumpkins traditionally are are very destructible. They are incredibly destructible. <laughs> and you know what? They don't waft. They've never wafted. No, I don't. Th- I don't think any any gourds, vegetables, no. fruits. What's a what is a pumpkin? I know it's a gourd. Yes, <laughs> seeds inside. Is that is that fruit? Yeah, sure. Um, I think so. Yeah, you know, whatever. Pumpkins it, don't it, it, don't be wafting. That's all. And they they do typically be exploding if hit with things. Yeah. Especially if it's a jack-o'-lantern and hollow inside, that thing's going to, that thing's going to blow right away. It's, it's not going to be pretty. It's going to be like the Stay Puff Marshmallow Man, just like, you know, seeing it, it's that bad <laughs> everywhere. It gets everywhere. Um, so Wall's unit just kind of sits there for about half an hour watching this thing. Half an hour? UF, God damn. Yeah, half an hour. It was it was just sitting through these, uh, you know, shell bursts, just hanging out there like, OK, whatever. Then the UFO turned its focus to the men in the bunker, just kind of knew that they were there. Um, this object approached us. It turned a brilliant blue green and started pulsating. Wall turned to his CO and asked to fire upon the object, which was granted. <laughs> I fired at it with an M1 rifle with armor-piercing bullets, and I hit it. It must have been metallic because you could hear the projectile slamming into it. But why would a bullet damage this craft if the artillery rounds didn't? I don't know. But after I hit it, the object went wild. The light was going on and off. It was moving erratically from side to side as though it might crash. Then a sound... We had uh, we had heard no sound previous to this. The sound of a diesel locomotive of uh, diesel locomotives revving up. That's the way this thing sounded. Um, well, that's bizarre. Yeah. Yeah. Why? I mean, if you're if you've been shooting this thing with heavier artillery for half an hour, why would a gun bother it? Right. That don't exactly. make no sense. Yeah, he he kind of figured that out pretty quick. Uh. We were attacked. We were swept by some form of ray. It was like a searchlight. You would feel a burning, tingling sensation all over your body when it hits you, as though something were penetrating you. So the company commander hauled us into our bunkers. We didn't know what was going to happen. We were scared. These are underground dugouts where you have peepholes to look out to fire at the enemy. So I'm in my bunker with another man we're peeping out at this thing it hovered over us for a while lit up the whole area with its light and then i saw it shoot off at a 45 degree angle that quick just there and gone so the men would have to sit tight for three days before they could be evacuated out um yeah and in the hospital they were found to be suffering from dysentery and an abnormally high white blood cell count. What would that be indicative of? Also, um, what is dysentery? They, <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> like the things, I, the if things you have, have a, during this episode, 
It's yeah, an intest- like, okay, an intestinal <laughs> infection. Got it. Yeah. Well, could those be related then? Don't white white blood cells right fight infection? Uh, yeah, yeah generally. Yeah. Uh, when they're abnormally <laughs> high, that that's a problem. You don't want them abnormally high. Well, you don't want dysentery either. I mean, no, you, you don't, don't want to be, and you, you don't, don't want to be penetrated by a pumpkin. There are all kinds of things here that you don't want. You you don't want to die uh, like they did on the Oregon Trail. Like you know, you don't want that in your life. No, you don't want to shit um, yourself to death. That's a that's a tough way to go. <laughs> yeah. So uh, Mac Maloney, who authored uh, the book UFOs in Wartime, dubbed this case a close encounter of the fifth kind, which is a case. Uh, in which communication is established. He considers the rocking motion of the UFO in response to the firing as a form of communication. And uh, Richard Haynes, who wrote extensively about this case, found similar cases to the the, the Chorwan encounter uh, involving hunters that uh, shot at objects and they started to rock side to side, back and forth. Interestingly enough, never got any clarification as to what these sightings were in the in the reading, but you know, uh, Haynes apparently found them. You know, some things, but shooting something and then seeing it move doesn't really seem to rise to the level of quote communication to me. No, like most no. things will move if you shoot them. That doesn't mean they're communicating with you. Yeah. Exactly. They. If, if I are, shoot my mailbox, it'll move. That doesn't mean I'm having a conversation with my mailbox. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, that also says a lot uh, about the nature of UFOs. Like, oh, when you when you hit it with bullets, it just kind of like sways back and forth. I will. Yeah. Granted, the type of movement is very strange. Yes. This whole thing is extremely strange. Saying that is, you were communicating with it seems like a bit of a stretch. I just assume that the UFO was dancing with itself. Like, you know, that's, I mean, that seems equally plausible. Yeah. Uh, I think well, it's a except for the whole shooting it first thing. <laughs> yeah. That's a theory that should be explored by somebody. Maybe me. We'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll get to that later. But um, uh, the, there is uh, one case that I pulled from uh you know a war that that uh the u.s wasn't involved in because most of these uh, cases come from that uh but this is from the algerian war so in march of 1958 algeria was in the middle of a war uh for its independence from france uh which it would ultimately earn in 1962 in the middle of a foreign legion camp uh sud uh he has a very very odd name. His his name is Sud Constan uh, Tenois. Uh, probably totally butchering that, but sure. Um, the, the yeah, that's uh, that's where their camp uh, was at the time. The site was fortified. Um, you know, kind of just like dug out of the ground, lightly armored, uh, equipped with a telephone. The most kind of just like your basic outpost in a way. And under the cloudless uh, night, the moon was shining and all was silent in the desert. And there was one lone legionnaire on duty. Uh, he was he's given the initials NG and he was sitting on the ground near a trench with his rifle in his hand. 
And about 12.30 a.m., he felt strange. Uh, And this was a feeling that just came very suddenly. Then there was this kind of whistling noise, kind of like the the kind that you hear when you blow on the neck of a bottle. So it's very eerie. Um, And then he seemed to be to realize that it was coming from above him. And he just kind of looked up and above him hovered this enormous rounded disc like object descending in his direction from a distance of about 35 to 40 meters or about 100 to 120 feet. Uh, And that's where it stopped. Um, And it just hung there motionless. And NG sat there silent, uh, like taking it all in. He estimated this thing to be 350 meters or about a thousand feet wide. Whoa. Yeah. Coming towards him. Yeah. Mm -mm. (laughs) Nope. (laughs) So this, this craft, it's surrounded by this pale green light and it's kind of emitting this intense conical beam from the center of it down to the ground. NG, he was calm the entire time. Just chill about the whole damn thing during like he saw this thing for 50 minutes. Whoa. Just chilling. Yeah. Didn't didn't pick up his rifle, didn't reach for the phone. Just kind of on his back, basking in the glory of this object. Uh, Okay. He was like really enamored by the the color of the lights and how dynamic they were and like just rooted to the spot. He got hypnotized um, by the UFO. Yep. Classic and story. As, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and as this, uh, you know, 50 minutes passes, the object begins to rise again and he hears the whistling sound once again and it uh, flies off. At, at tremendous speed and in the wake of its departure ng felt this incredible sadness that it was leaving hmm. they bonded during the 50 minutes yep um and like kind of uh, a few minutes later he, he started to regain his mental faculties a bit and he reached for the phone where he reported his sighting to the camp officer. And to his surprise, the officer wasn't interested and stated that uh, they would address it in the morning. And most of his uh, fellow soldiers felt like he was suffering from, you know, the strain of the war, which is, you know, the kind of go-to excuse most of the time. And he was sent to a military hospital under close watch for a week before he was discharged in good health. Uh, he didn't tell his story uh, until like uh, about the 1970s. So he held on to it for, for a while. But um, uh, he it was his belief that, you know, it was some, something, you know, coming from some other world to watch us. And uh, he said that the experience was uh, like being in another world, basically. So huh. I, I dig that. I dig it. Yeah, I don't know if I've heard that before. Like being very physically here, mm-hmm. but just being in the presence of something feels like you are transported elsewhere. Yep. That's pretty cool. 
I don't think I've yeah. heard that before. No, it's like the chillest UFO encounter ever. Just, you know, just a dude in a UFO out here chilling, doing whatever. So, soaking up the space life. vibes. Yep. <laughs> soaking them all up. Um, so the, the Vietnam War had a lot of interesting cases. Uh, played host to a fair share of UFO encounters. Um, and there was one that was investigated by NICAP in 1966 uh, in June near Natrang, which is uh, lo- uh, which is uh, where this uh, mass massive kind of joint military base uh, that these South Vietnamese in the U.S. have. Um, at the time, a construction crew was cutting roads with like half a dozen bulldozers. Um, there were fighter bombers that were preparing to take off. Uh, and there were a large group of soldiers that were taking in an outdoor movie at the time uh, with the use of a generator. And at 9.45 p.m., the sky around this base just kind of lit up uh, as bright as daylight. Uh, at first, they thought that it was a flare um, that somebody... Uh, was uh lighting up but uh when the flare didn't go out immediately um they everybody just kind of looked up and they just see this huge luminous object hovering over the base and in a moment the object plummets just straight down uh headed for this base and it stopped about 500 feet from the ground from the ground and you know the appearance of this object caused the bulldozers, the planes, and this generator to malfunction. It just, everything stopped working. Um, And they described it as if, like, the sun had descended into this valley. And just as suddenly as it appeared, it shot away. And according to, uh, you know, this group, there were investigators from the U.S. that arrived the next day and just, like, interviewed everybody. So... Yeah, it's kind of weird. Wait, how did they know about it? Exactly, right? That's bizarre. Yeah. And you said the next day? Next day. Flew from the United States to Vietnam. Made it in a day. Like overnight? Overnight. Huh. It's pretty fucking weird. Yeah, what could that be? You know, got uh, got some bib action here. You know, got to interview weird. people. Yeah, huh. interview them. But I mean, it would like, how long would it even take you? I mean, I guess uh, if you're the military or flying private or whatever, which you probably would be, but still, like, what? Is, how long does a flight take from the U.S. to Vietnam? Right, take a while, Espe- especially um, in the '60s. And I'm wondering, uh, did they have the ability to refuel their planes in the air by this time? I think they did. I, but but uh, if it's not yeah, clear by now, I sure as hell don't know anything about anything. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I hear you, man. I hear you. We're, we're speculating in areas that are dangerous. But, uh-huh. <laughs> but you know, um, the, the demilitarized zone seemed to be like a hot spot for a lot of uh, this kind of activity. Uh, and one afternoon in 1966, there was a helicopter uh, that was forced to touch down close to the to the DMZ. Uh, the North Vietnamese opened fire and just like 
this full scale battle just like erupted. Um, so like this uh, unit of helicopters, they land down um, and like this area is being overrun. There's grass fires that are starting to pop up. One of the helicopters was experiencing engine trouble and the commanding officer of another nearby helicopter ordered the main witness of this particular case to grab a fire extinguisher and run to the disabled helicopter. And as he was about to return to his own, the witness found that he was surrounded completely in smoke and flames, and uh, he was kind of just growing disoriented by it. And he heard a Vietnamese voice shouting, and he spotted a soldier that had a gun pointed at him. He heard a loud crack and assumed that uh, he'd been shot. Only he hadn't. He felt no pain. And looking to the enemy soldier's position, he saw an eight-foot-tall figure dressed, quote-unquote, perfectly with a helmet that covered most of the face. I'm sorry. What does dressed perfectly mean? <laughs> I don't know. I I tried to figure that out, and I it just... I'm assuming that whatever they're wearing, one, that thing's got no creases in it at all. It's just... Right. Does it mean like perfectly fashionable or does it mean like perfectly like to fit in in the right. setting or like good job, perfect human clothes, eight foot tall alien? Right. That's a funny yeah. description. It is. Uh, this this being was surrounded in a halo uh, of light and they spoke to the witness, reassuring him that everything was all right. And that you should get to your helicopter now. Okay. Yeah, that's 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 literally how that story goes. That's Eight pretty, foot tall, dude. Pretty chill, all things considered. <laughs> right. Like, it's just such a weird story out of nowhere. But um, so this particular case is kind of infamous in UFO circles because uh, the, the narrative around it has been kind of twisted a little bit uh, because there is some mystery associated with it. So uh, another case that occurred near the DMZ, um, uh, there's this is a great summary from a, a Vietnam War website. It's kind of long, but it kind it gives you the flavor uh, of it. So Task Force 115, named Operation Market Time, was a collection of U.S. Navy and Coast Guard vessels that patrolled the coast of South Vietnam to counter communist infiltration and smuggling operations in the South China Sea. The backbone of market time was the PCF, technically the Patrol Craft Fast, which is what they called those. Uh, they're like the smaller, faster kind of boats that uh, would get you there pretty quick. Um, they, uh, but referred to nearly universally as the swift boat. Swift boats were about 50 feet long with a shallow draft to enable them to come close to shore and navigate rivers and inlets uh, along the coast. They were lightly armored, but fast, maneuverable, and armed with machine guns and mortars. So it it does great in rivers, does great in like the ocean. It's It's a pretty versatile craft. This is uh, this is the first time I know a tiny bit about what we're talking about. I learned a yeah, lot exactly. about the uh, the swift boats for that that other podcast that I made earlier this year. <laughs> yes, <laughs> for yes. reasons that we will not discuss. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, uh, PCF nineteen had six crewmen 
aboard during its patrol on the night of June 15th. Um, This is 1968. Uh, The commander of the vessel was Lieutenant Junior Grade John David. The other American sailors were Petty Officers Second Class John R. Anderegg, Billy S. Armstrong, Frank Bowman, Anthony Tony G. Chandler, and Edward C. Cruz. A seventh man aboard was a South Vietnamese sailor and liaison, Bui Kong Ti. The weather that night was calm and the sea seemingly quiet. But at approximately 1 a.m. on June 16th, there appeared overhead several hovering orange lights. Within seconds, three rockets erupted from the lights and slammed into the swift boat, which exploded in a mass of jagged metal and engine fuel. A few miles away, the men aboard the U.S. Coast Guard cutter Point Doom saw the rocket strikes light up the early morning darkness, though not the aircraft that fired them. As the Doom uh, turned to assist PCF-19, the swift boat disappeared from its radar screens. Two of the rockets struck PCF-19's forward cabin, while the third hit the engine compartment. Inside the cabin was Petty Officer Second Class Billy S. Armstrong and the South Vietnamese sailor. They were killed instantly. Armstrong was 29 years old, a 10-year Navy veteran uh, from West Helena, Arkansas. Just outside the cabin, the boat commander, Lieutenant John David, was severely wounded by flying shrapnel and blinded by the intense brightness of the explosions. He suddenly found himself floundering in the water. Petty Officer Second Class John R. Anderegg, who had managed to secure the swift boat's life raft before the vessel sank, saw the skipper struggling, paddled towards him, and pulled him into the raft. A short distance away, Anderig also spotted a struggling, barely conscious petty officer, second class, Frank Bowman. He had been badly wounded. Bowman was 32 years old and a 12-year Navy veteran hailing from Westboro, South Carolina. Anderig made, de- made a determined effort to reach Bowman, but Bowman died before he could be pulled out of the water and he sank beneath the surface. His remains have never been found. Petty Officer Second Class Edward Cruz was the youngest sailor aboard PCF-19. He was 22 years old uh, from the island of Guam. Cruz was killed in the, in the rocket strike on the engine compartment. He was one of approximately 6,000 uh, Guamanians who served in the U.S. Armed Forces in Vietnam. A total of 75 of them, including Cruz, were killed in the war. The sixth crewman, Petty Officer Second Class, Anthony Tony G. Chandler, was blown clear of the swift boat in the rocket blast and believed to have struck the water. Subsequent searches over the following days never located any signs of him. So, like, when UFO researchers present this story, they give you a very tame version of uh, uh, what I'll get to at the end. Um, It just kind of seems almost cartoonish when you think about the horrors of war and the reality of things. So I'm kind of giving everybody the the real deal um, behind all this. But um, Chandler was 23 years old and a native of Warner Robins, Georgia. Decades later, a local fisherman found human remains in his nets and later buried them near his home. The man eventually informed the Vietnamese government, who turned the remains over to the American officials in 1993. 
In 2001, with the advancement of a DNA testing technology, the United States scientists confirmed the remains were Chandler's. He was laid to rest in his native Georgia. After the swift boat sank, Anderig and David waited in their raft to help while the mysterious attacking helicopters continued to hover in the area. The Cutter Point Doom and another nearby swift boat, PCF-12, radioed to ask if they uh, were American helicopters. The answer came after a few moments. As far as anyone knew, there were no friendly aircraft in the area. As the Point Doom picked up the two survivors, the Coast Guard vessel and PCF-12 received machine gun and rocket fire from the unknown craft. In recounting the incident, the PCF-12 crew consistently affirmed that the attacks came from two helicopters. They described in the aftermath of the sinking, PCF-12 had been lit up by four illumination rounds not uh, from the adjacent Point Doom. The two unidentified helicopters then hovered low on either side of the boat. The depictions given by the swift boat crew seemed to match that of the Soviet-built MI-4 Hound helicopter. But what two MI-4s were doing off the coast of the demilitarized zone remained unclear. PCF-12's gunners fired at one aircraft and reportedly shooting it down as a splash of water, uh, a splash was heard in the water. At that point... The second helicopter broke off its attack. No wreckage was ever found. The second helicopter was, was later unsuccessfully launched a rocket missing Point Doom. The Coast Guard cutter fired back to no apparent effect. Search and rescue efforts for the five missing men commenced immediately and lasted four days. PCF-19 sank in relatively shallow water and divers quickly recovered the remains of crews, Armstrong, and Bui. The divers were, however, unable to locate Chandler or Bowman. They observed and recorded three obvious rocket strikes on the swift boat. The ensuing investigation connected the attacks of that night with a similar attack. The American missile cruiser USS Boston, CAG-69, and the Australian missile destroyer HMAS Hobart, D-39, were attacked in the same location on the next night, June 17th. In that incident, American F-42 Phantom fighter jets mistakenly fired on the two vessels with air-to-air -air missiles. Two Australian sailors were killed in this friendly fire incident with 11 wounded. Investigators initially concluded the same thing must have occurred in the attack on PCF-19 one night earlier. The witnesses to the June 16 attacks, however, reported that the attacking aircraft were definitely helicopters, not fixed-wing jets. Throughout the spring of 1968, Marine Station near the DMZ reported hovering orange lights just inside North Vietnam and over the waters between the coast and nearby Tiger Island, which was in North Vietnamese hands. Many assumed these were helicopters, but day daytime reconnaissance pilots never reported seeing any North Vietnamese helicopters near the DMZ, either in the air or on the ground. North Vietnam did have a few MI-4 helicopters, but all intelligence reports and records indicate they were almost exclusively used for resupply missions on the Ho Chi Minh Trail. The MI-4 could, however, be fitted with machine guns and rocket pods. After June 16, 1968, no similar attacks in the area ever occurred again. In fact, there were no confirmed reports of North Vietnamese or communist helicopter attacks during the entire war. 
PCF-19 was one of only four American Swift boats lost in combat during the Vietnam War. Anderegg received the Silver Star Medal for his rescue of David and his attempt to save Bowman. Bowman, along with Cruz, Chandler, and Armstrong, are memorialized on panels 56W and 57W of the Vietnam Veterans Memorial in Washington, D.C. So, you know, the belief here is that helicopters were responsible. Helicopters were... Uh, the North Vietnamese had them. They didn't use them in combat, uh, you know, choosing to use them in, you know, supply missions and, and such. They could move, you know, heavy machinery with it. But uh, UFO researchers have kind of taken this case and like kind of turned it on its head. Um, uh, and it, And they basically name one person here and it's a guy named pete snyder who was allegedly the uh commander of pcf-12 uh one of the rescuing ships who claimed that they weren't helicopters they were actually ufos and they were attacking them um you know sinking boats and and, and stuff like that it's it's ridiculous um another thing that people point to in this particular case is that there's a, an alleged quote from general nathan twining Entwining, he's a guy that was pretty synonymous with UFOs from uh, about the start of um, the phenomenon in 1947. He always seemed to kind of play a part throughout the years. Um, but uh, he claimed that uh, in like some offshoot quote that um, uh, they had difficult time with ufos in vietnam they had a specific term for them and that term was enemy helicopters so mm. you get this kind of you know narrative of um hey here's this one incident that's kind of mysterious because they're claiming it's helicopters but yeah enemy helicopters i people are still writing about this case like these days and uh it's just kind of weird because they leave out a lot of details they don't tell you the names of all these people that were in this boat that uh you know lost their lives and such so we're setting the record straight on this one it was probably helicopters uh granted these helicopters were out of the way where you like you know, it's an out-of-the-way operation, but uh, yeah, it just seems to be like a couple of helicopters. We can stop talking about this one as a UFO case. It certainly seems more likely. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, if, mm -hmm. if I had to weigh, how likely is it that the things that they called helicopters were helicopters versus how likely is it that the things they called helicopters were aliens, UFOs? Right, right. One seems significantly more likely than the other. Exactly. Um... So now that we've set that record straight, we're going to we're going to get weird again. And uh, <laughs> okay. this is probably the strangest account from the Vietnam War that, that I've ever heard. Um, the story was collected by UFO investigator slash researcher Leonard Stringfield. Uh, Stringfield devoted a lot of his career to crash retrievals and like the idea that the government's, uh, you know, out here just snatching up crashed UFOs all the time and stuff like his uh, he, he used to publish uh, these like 
crash retrieval status reports because, you know, people would come out of the blue and just kind of give him, uh, you know, these cases and and, and stuff like that. But um, uh, interestingly enough, Stringfield was attached to the U.S. uh, 5th Army Air Force in in an intelligence role. And he had his own uh, encounter with Foo Fighters in August of 1945. Um, On the 28th of that month, while flying in a uh, Curtis C-46 commando aircraft over Iwo Jima, Stringfield, along with the entire crew, spotted three teardrop-shaped UFOs. The appearance of these objects caused the plane's engines and navigation equipment to malfunction. The pilot was eventually able to regain control, um, but this is kind of the incident that made him the UFO investigator that that he ultimately became. So in 1989, a high-ranking military officer, quote-unquote, confided in the investigator During the war, somewhere in Cambodia in April of 1972, an elite special ops group was making its way through a heavily forested area in the direction of the Vietnam border. This area was said to be the home of a North Vietnamese listening post, and their orders were to eliminate it. As the unit approached a clearing, an odd circular object, 50 feet in diameter, was sitting on the forest floor, propped up on a set of legs in a tripod formation. The object was so reflective that they could see their own images uh, reflecting back at them at their current position. A deep hum pulsated from this device, causing the soldiers to feel a little nauseous and disoriented. But the most startling thing is that around this vehicle were a number of humanoids that resembled greys with large wraparound black eyes, And these aliens were, in fact, uh, in the act of loading mutilated human body parts and corpses into large metallic bins. Oh, no. Mm hmm. I think this is I think this is Ryan's like big fear because I I know like (laughs) the mutilation stuff got to him and like, you know, he was it's the human stuff. It seems like a. Plenty reasonable thing to be afraid of, uh, yep. being chopped to bits and loaded into bins by aliens. Yep. That would suck pretty bad. Yep. Uh, these uh, bodies were loaded into these bins uh, and they were sealed. Uh, the witnesses claimed to see, you know, uh, it was American soldiers, Vietnamese, like uh, all different types, and the special ops team took up a position in the surrounding foliage, opening fire on these aliens. And the suits that they were uh, that they were wearing kind of protected them; they kind of fended off all the bullets. But uh, they didn't; their heads weren't protected. So, <laughs> oh, fuck. Yeah, one one of the greys <laughs> had been killed by friendly fire, and three more by headshots. <laughs> Wait, 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 wait. Friendly fire. The aliens were shooting back? Yes. Yep. Dude, this is fucking crazy. Yeah. So There was a firefight between aliens who had already apparently killed a bunch of humans. Yeah, like picture in your head kind of like the Phil Schneider, Dulce Underground, you know, in a firefight with the aliens under there. They've got like, you know, laser beam weapons. We've got bullets. Sure, sure. Same kind of thing here. Um, Got to go for the heads because the suits are bullet bulletproof. Yeah. Uh, 
The humans Yikes. sustained less casualties, though. They only had one. Uh, oh, okay. Good job, they, us. They were, yeah, they, uh, the, they did have quite a few who were wounded. But, uh, yeah, this, uh, this ray was produced by the UFO, not by the, the aliens. But, like, they had, they had backup with them, you know, which is, um, which is good. But uh, Well, not, team, not for the humans, it isn't. Yeah, uh, that, that, that's fair. That's fair. But each team kind of like backed off and uh, the UFO eventually lifted off. But yeah, it's just it's it's crazy. It, it, it's the kind of crazy story that, you know, that Leonard Stringfield has just like sitting in his you know uh, files. Rest in peace. But that uh, uh, I appreciate you saving the craziest for last, assuming that was the last one. No, this is the last one here. And this oh, okay. Is, okay. And this is equally as crazy. But, uh, yeah, we can't forget the infamous sighting of the uh, flying woman of Vietnam, or as some called her, the Batwoman, in the summer. Of, you know, this is the summer of 1969, like, you know, Brian Adams sang about uh, back in the day. Not, um, not Mothwoman, Batwoman, huh? Uh, Batwoman. Um, a soldier pulling guard duty near Da Nang saw... This shape come out of the darkness. It wasn't an aircraft, though. It was a naked woman with huge black wings, black skin. Her body was also glowing very brightly. And wow. she flew over the area for about four minutes before just flying away. But quick point of clarification. Flying. Mm-hmm. Wings. Mm-hmm. Glowing woman mm-hmm. what what about that reads as woman we're, we're saying everything else was like human like yeah yeah pretty much just added wings and glow <laughs> to mm-hmm. a person pretty much and then she flew around for four minutes flew around like, for four minutes took a couple laps mm-hmm. huh well that's pretty fucking weird what was she doing? Just, uh, you know, going for a <laughs> night flight. I guess. I mean, it makes sense if you're flying around at night that you would be glowing. Yeah, that would help, I guess. You probably don't have a whole lot of predators if you're a flying human, so you don't have to worry about being seen. No, you you are, you know, they've got the leader of the pack. She's the leader of the bat. Yeah. It's just, yeah. Yep. And and speaking of flying away, that's going to do it for this episode. <laughs> well done, sir. Well done. Dude, uh, thank you again for, for coming on and, uh, you know, going through the these absolute baller cases. And, like, uh, <laughs> you've got, you know, a, a couple of uh, new... You got some podcast projects, dude. Not only that, you you've got like uh, a whole media empire that you're building, dude. So many podcasts. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm I've got a couple new ones coming out in the next few weeks. Um, the first is called the Layers Layer, in which mm-hmm. my wife and I uh, watch the Great British Bake Off and then talk about it. Mm-hmm. And then the other one that might be a little more on brand for your audience. Uh, not to say that your audience. Your audience should also be in the Bake Off. It's a great TV show. It's a lovely it time. Is. It's it the is. most wholesome entertainment available right now. Um, but the other one is called Dang, That's Weird, where basically I just talk to 
everyday regular people about their strangest experiences. Um, Rob has, I will, I will spill the beans a little. Rob is a, a guest on, on yep. an episode that has already been recorded. Um, so yeah, that show launches October 13th, but you can go check out the trailer and subscribe now wherever you prefer to listen to podcasts. And y'all should check it out. Definitely. Cause, uh, I, we, we go, we go in depth on, on one of my stories. We, uh, we got to the nitty gritty of it and it's, it's, and it's, it's a doozy. weird. It is, it is quite a doozy. Um, so, um, you know, I, I did state, I think in the last episode, we, we are a proud member of, of the Duvid Media family. So, yeah. uh, uh, it feels great to be part of something that, uh, you know, it, it, that we all believe in. So uh, y'all yeah. should follow along on social media stuff, especially Instagram. It's a lot of great stuff over there. Um, Lots of new uh, shows coming all fall. So, yeah. Yep. David Media is uh, a thing. It's a thing. <laughs> <laughs> it's a thing it's definitely a thing now um nailed it so if y'all want to uh follow along on social media subscribe to the patreon or, or buy some fantastic merchandise like you, you should really get some of that merch uh we have a one-stop shop for you now that's right ourstrangeguys.com it's back let's go <laughs> it's back <laughs> Uh, and, and, and one of the coolest things, uh, that we've included is a digital resource section. So, uh, if you're interested in kind of the, uh, places where I pull a lot of the cases and stuff that are featured on this podcast and you want to get lost for a while, just like diving into all this stuff, go check out that resources page. Cause you will get lost for quite a while. Like uh, that's kind of the joy of looking for this stuff is like clicking on a resource and then, you know, like opening up a, you know, UFO journal from like the 1970s in, in another country. It's, it's great. So, um, there's enough uh, info in there to do like a hundred plus podcast episodes about. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Like that's, you know, I'm giving you the tools folks. I'm yeah. giving you the tools to, you know, I'm giving you the tools to be me basically, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, go, go check out the website uh it, it's fantastic and, and spencer is the is the one behind it he, he designed it so eh, it was a joint effort but yes <laughs> so uh our theme song is ufo by floats uh and if you enjoy that song you can go get it on Bandcamp. you can listen to it on apple music and spotify it's pretty damn great uh special thanks to spencer who uh you know has been helping us a lot behind the scenes with a lot of different things uh you'll notice that the mic quality is uh ratcheted up a bit nice <laughs> but more, uh more importantly yeah. did you fix that chair did you fix the squeaky chair no but uh, ah, i'm gonna it. be getting myself a new chair very soon we we will get that chair on lockdown but uh he uh spencer does the editing the sound design uh a lot of stuff behind the scenes um, Megan Lagerberg is behind her logo and the great Desdemona is behind a lot of our t-shirt designs and finally don't forget to look up because you never know what you'll find in our strange skies or at a Foo Fighters concert for that matter in gray we trust I saw you in the